This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. We will also explore threats to meaningful engagement in sport and movement culture practices and ask questions about what we can learn about the human condition through our involvement in sport. The guests are leading scholars in human and social sciences of sport who will share their explorations in a scholarly as well as a personal context. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. In the previous episodes, we have mostly focused on how and why sport is meaningful for athletes. But they are by no means the only actors involved in sport who can derive meaning from their participation. Playing sport as an athlete can be one important dimension of living a meaningful life, but so could be other types of involvement in sport, such as being a coach. And how the coach is in the sport world has important implications for the experience of the athlete and whether and how the athlete can experience meaningful participation. Our guest today has explored what it means to be a coach and has recently focused on understanding how coaches can develop caring relationships with athletes. In his work, he often uses a phenomenological and narrative research approach and some of the less conventional qualitative methods, such as diary writing. He's a senior lecturer in sport coaching and physical education at Liverpool John Moores University and serves as an associate editor for the journal Sports Coaching Review. So welcome, Colin Cronin, and thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Nora. It's great to be here. I've really enjoyed listening to some of the other podcasts and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, me too. And, and thanks so much. And um, I think to start out our discussion today, it's always quite enjoyable to hear kind of who is behind the research and, and how your personal experience is in sport and, and being a sports coach as well can influence how you approach your work and and how these personal experiences influence the types of questions you are asking. So maybe talk a little bit about your own sporting background and your own uh, coaching background as well. Um, okay. So yeah, I'd uh, probably describe myself as a, an average at best um, athlete. Uh, my sport was basketball. I was encouraged to play by my older sister and my first coach was actually a female English teacher at our high school um, who set up the basketball team and, and got us playing there. Um, and that seemed like a really good idea when I was about 11 because um, I think I was a, I was quite tall at that stage. I, I was about maybe five foot seven uh, um, as an 11 year old. The problem is I was also five foot seven as a 13 year old and um, eventually 
stretching just a little bit beyond that. Uh, and by the time I was 18, I was still a similar height and I hadn't progressed much as, as an athlete. Uh, and I, I knew that I wasn't going to make it as a, a basketball player. So I looked to do a, a sport management degree. I looked to get as close to basketball as I could. And that was at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in England. And um, from there, I met the local basketball development officer, uh, a lady called Deirdre Hayes, and she got me volunteering coaching. And coaching was basically as close as I could get to playing. So it was really exciting uh, for me, working with young people, working with adults, playing games, preparing teams. Uh, so I very much fell in love with coaching. Later on, basketball in England is quite underdeveloped as a sport so at best there's a semi-professional setup and so there's a big amateur game so I also needed to find a career so I fell into kind of PE teaching and teaching at a college and basically as I went through PE teaching and teaching sport I started to almost have a bit of a, an identity question a burning question which was am I a teacher or am I a coach because I saw lots of similarities during the day. I would teach, I would plan lessons, I would work with young people, I'd reflect on those lessons. In the evening, I would plan basketball sessions, deliver them, reflect on those sessions. So I was seeing lots of similarities and I had this burning question and that actually became uh, the question for my PhD really, which was what does it mean to be a coach uh, versus maybe what does it mean to be a teacher? And for that, I was supervised by Professor Kathy Armour, another female influence on my life, a very positive one. And to answer that question, what does it mean to be a coach? What is coaching as opposed to what is teaching? Um, I ended up turning to phenomenology. Uh, so that's a whistle-stop tour. I don't know if you want to explore any of that a bit further, or does that give you a clear picture? Yeah, I think that's a really nice introduction, and, and we should probably discuss a bit further what the difference what it means to be a teacher versus what it means to be a coach. But I think you already started kind of mentioning the phenomenological approach and the phenomenological research philosophy. And um, we had some discussions on on phenomenology in, in this podcast already, and, and there are different strands of phenomenology. I guess nobody knows all of them very well or... I don't know how you can do that, given there are so many different types of phenomenology. And uh, Gunnar Breivik, for example, discussed Heidegger's uh, philosophy and how he's using that in a more sports philosophy context. But um, it would be quite interesting to hear just kind of why phenomenology was inspirational for you and, and what would be some of the key thinkers and, and texts that were important for you in developing your own approach to phenomenology. Yeah, that's um, yeah, that's a nice place to start. Really, um, I, I suppose there was a key paper which was done um, by Carrie and Armour, and Kathy Armour was my PhD supervisor. So she had flagged that to me, but it was it was maybe two thousand was that paper, and I think it was called the Promise of Phenomenology for Sports. So it was a nice starting paper which kind of outlined that. There might be some value in, in in phenomenology for sport research, and one of the key arguments in that paper was kind of almost the um, 
embodied and sensual nature of sport. So, you know, we come to sport through our, through our senses. We, you know, we hear the sound of a basketball. You can almost tell the intensity of a basketball game by the squeak of the shoes on the court and um, by the, 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 the volume of the players when they're uh, talking and defending, you know, as well as the sweat, as well as the straining, the pain. Um, you know, the feel of a basketball court is almost the smell of certain sport venues, the change room. So sport's a very sensual experience and that maybe phenomenology um, can help us to capture those sensory experiences, to understand and look through them and, and shine a light on, on sport experiences. And I think that's kind of the main argument in that paper. Uh, and I think that's why Kathy probably flagged it for me. But there's probably another reason why I thought it might be valuable to um, to coaching. Because, again, coaching can be quite embodied. You know, your heart race is pounding. You're listening to players. You're, you know, you're caught up in the moment. But also we know a lot of, uh, a lot of coaches learn through experience. We know a lot of coaches learn through interaction with each other. Um, communities of practice, you know, informal reflective conversations. So we de- therefore we kind of know that coaching is this embodied process, which you know you kind of learn in a given world. And I think from the coaching research, and then coupled with the Kerry and Armour paper, that made me think that actually understanding the experience of coaches and the world that they inhabit is the route through to understanding what it means to be a coach and what is coaching. Uh, what do you think, Nora? I think all of that makes makes a lot of sense to me. And uh, yeah, just reading your your paper on, on the being a coach, I, I just really love the approach that often we are, a lot of coaching research is that what do the coaches do and going into kind of details of the coaching practice and what works and what doesn't work and and how can we change that and so forth but kind of your your starting point the existential question of what does it mean to be a coach i think that's uh we should start from the fundamentals and and so i really love that paper i'm smiling here now nora you you can't see but i'm smiling because i'm glad you appreciate the paper it's it's probably um my favorite paper that um, that I've written. And I think one of the reasons why I like it is that it's that idea that maybe the coach has knowledge and understanding that us as researchers don't have, and that maybe the, mm-hmm. maybe the starting point to understand what is coaching is to ask the people who are doing it. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily to go along and, you know, observe them from a distance or... Um, but to maybe appreciate and value their experience. That doesn't mean we don't necessarily critically consider their experiences, but it means that we value that actually they're in the world. They probably know it better than us. So let's start by asking uh, them to describe that experience. And that's probably a theme across most of my research then is valuing the practitioner experience, doing research with them rather than doing research on them. 
and that again links us to phenomenology which is you know the key tenant is the route to understanding is experience you know if we want to experience what it means to know what it means to be a coach we need to experience it or at least speak to somebody who does experience it so maybe you can talk a little bit about the background of the being in the coaching world paper about the idea and also about the research process how you how you did that yeah so if i take you back to my my coaching Uh, experiences then so I was a basketball coach and I was as I said teaching most of the time I was also doing research my you know PGC and master's degree and so I was quite busy and I was coaching at kind of um, a reasonable standard uh, but not necessarily a high performance setting I was kind of on the fringes of that so I would coach county teams but not the national team I would coach you know some play some underage players who might go for national team trials but i wouldn't necessarily be coaching a group of 12 of them so i was kind of on the periphery of that high performance world and that was the world i was looking to to go into and that then leads to the question what does it mean to be a kind of a youth performance coach and, and you know a national team coach you know producing athletes who are going to international competitions And that world is sometimes closed off, you know. You you need capital to enter that world, you know. If you haven't got necessarily a professional background as an athlete, it can be difficult to enter that world. So again, I wanted to understand that world. So the route to understanding from a phenomenological perspective is experience. So hence, I need to go and speak to the people who experience that world. So I spent some time with international coaches Uh, a basketball coach but I also wanted to get a variety of experiences so we also looked at athletics coaches and um, we also looked at male coaches female coaches team sport individual but all these coaches had experience of international youth um coaching and that was the world I was trying to understand and to spend time with them then it was just a kind of series of interviews Uh, over a three-year period um, because I wanted to understand what it means to be a coach in pre-season, what it means to be in a, co a coach at the end of a season, during a season. So there's a temporality around experience there. Um, you know, um, our experience is different at different times. So I needed to understand that really. So yeah, um, three years, interviews, And asking them in those interviews very descriptive questions. Can you tell me where you coach? Can you tell me when you coach? Who was there when you are a coach? And really almost playing the fool, asking the innocent question to get them to describe. And these coaches mm -hmm. were very patient with me. And, you know, they gave me kind of, you know, interviews, you know, would last kind of an hour to two the they almost found it uh, cathartic the interviews they were able to describe and think about their practice it was an hour or two out of a busy schedule and in doing that i kind of came to some insights around their life world i came to some insights around what is at the essence at the core of coaching i applied kind of phenomenological methods so there's a couple of phenomenological techniques One is called horizontalism, where you look across data to find what is a common core. One is called imaginative variation, where you look at that core and you consider, you know, could, would this activity be the same if this wasn't here? 
Uh, is it really mm -hmm. essential to this activity? Can this activity, can this experience take place without this element? Uh, or is this element essential to it? Is it an essence? How might this element manifest itself in different times, in different places, with different people, while still remaining an essence? So these are the phenomenological data analysis methods that I used, which I don't think I've seen too often in coaching research or sport research. So, you know, people might find value in looking at them. Yeah, um, absolutely. So that's in the data analysis section, really. Um, yeah, and through that three-year process, through looking through their subjective experiences, through torturing that data, through those horizontalism and imaginative variation, identifying kind of three core essence of what it means to be a coach, but also describing the life world, the world of where these people coach, the world that I was struggling to get into as a young developing coach. So that's where I got to. I'd be interested in your thoughts, Nora. Yeah, on any of that. Yeah, yeah let's let's go through the essences and I think then we can uh, reflect on that together. So maybe you share share the essences that you identified first. Yeah. So there's there's three essences. And, and as I said, a life world of where these essences manifest is, is quite important. So uh, maybe if I start with the life world to provide a bit of context, what I found about these coaches was that their life world extended beyond the field of play. Most of the coaching research I was reading at the time was about on court, on pitch, in a gym. And that's useful research, and that's part of being a coach. But when I asked these coaches where were they coaches and when were they were coach, they often described phone calls in coffee shops or meetings in coffee shops, planning sessions at home at their 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 kitchen table. One coach described reading athletes' training diaries on a Sunday night in her living room. So the life world of the coach extends beyond the field of play. They were also a coach on buses where they would have conversations with athletes. They were also a coach in hotel rooms. These guys would go to warm weather training and they would, you know, they would coach athletes on the plane, on the bus, in transport. And I thought that was really helpful because it extends where we need to research coaching. It, it, it says, okay, we have a lot of research about how coaches can behave on the field of play, but what about in all these other areas? Then when I drilled down into what were they doing across all these areas, I got to three essences. First and foremost, I found that these coaches were caring, and that's a really loaded term. Um, so I don't know if you want to come in or if you want me to continue and explain and elaborate that. Yeah, yeah, let's let's talk about all three of them. You can explain them first and, and okay. then we can reflect a so, little bit together. So my, yeah. my understanding uh, in, in, of care at this stage was kind of almost two for, forms. There was care in terms of um, what Heidegger might term like a concern, an interest. Mm -hmm. So these coaches yeah. were concerned for their sport. They were concerned for their fellow staff. They were concerned for, for their activity. So they would often do coach development workshops. They would often help out and mentor younger coaches. Um, 
They would they would try to raise the quality status of their sport. They would do a lot of admin work around there. So they were concerned about their sport and you know and interested in that. And you know I think probably all coaches are. Otherwise, why would you go out on a Tuesday night in the rain and the cold to coach? You know, that's a slightly different form of care than caring for someone. You know, uh, you can be concerned for your coach, but not very caring for athletes. Uh, now, fortunately for me, the four coaches that I interviewed also described caring for athletes. So they described, you know, coffee co and shop conversations where they would mentor athletes, listen to their concerns. One coach described, you know, uh, he was coaching young athletes. They might have problems in schools. Parents would often come to him and they would work through these problems with the athletes. He would have dinner with the parents almost in a, a mentor capacity, uh, dinner with the athletes, so mentor them so that you try to develop them as individuals, um, not just as athletes, as role models, life skills. So they, they were caring for athletes as well as caring about their sport. So there was concern for other things. So that was the first thing I saw. And again, if we only look at what happens on the field of play, we might miss all of that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so that's why understanding life world is important. The second thing, though, is that that isn't just enough. They were also committed to educating the athletes for the challenges of their sport. You know, sport is, you know, physically and mentally demanding. So on the field of play and off the field of play, um, through these caring relationships, they would educate. And, and that could manifest itself differently, as I said, at different times. One coach talked about how, you know, he adopts the role of a teacher when athletes are 12. Maybe he comes a bit more of a facilitator once they become 14, 15, 16, a bit more of a mentor. And eventually the coach talked about how as the athletes go into adulthood, they actually end up teaching him because they know what it means to, you know, perform at a high level um, and how their body feels. So how that education occurs can be very different in different contexts and at different times. But all the coaches involved were committed to educating their athletes for the challenges to come. A good example was, you know, a sprint coach. Uh, talking about in international competition, athletes have to warm up on their own, 45 minutes. It can be a lonely place. They're surrounded by their competitors. It can be intimidating. So he has to educate athletes for that challenge um, to cope without him. That probably shows where I was struggling to see the difference between coaching and teaching because both of them are educative acts and that's what they've got in yeah. common there, you know. So that's kind of the second essence. First is care about and for, and then through those caring for relationships, a commitment to educating them. And then the third element was really this idea of working with others to achieve a corporal excellence. I use the term corporal to, to kind of avoid the mind-body dualism um, here. Um, but I think working with others was really key because – one of the things I noticed about these coaches is being part, part of a youth performance coach meant involve interacting with referees, 
interacting with parents, with agents, with support staff such as physios. And again, we kind of miss a lot of that in our coaching research when we just focus on the coach-athlete interaction on the field of play. You know, a good example of that is maybe when we look at how opposing coaches work and interact together. Often we see, you know, high-profile coaches and a media narrative which, pit, you know, pits one coach against the other uh, as competing. But actually, in, in some ways, these coaches are actually collaborating because excellence is defined by your performance in relation to somebody else. So you need an opposing coach to raise your standards, to challenge you, to pose problems for athletes to solve. So we should be looking at coach-coach relationships, not as competitive, aggressive, confrontational, but actually collaborative. I can't coach a, a basketball team unless I have an opposition to play against. I need that opposing coach. And the better quality that opposing coach is, the better quality my basketball team can develop because we can play against them and learn, reflect, and share ideas. And so working with others, such as referees, such as opponents, such as management, is a key part of being a, a coach, and it's a key part of defining what is excellence. Ultimately, you know, we live in an interpersonal world. Again, if we go to Heidegger, Heidegger would say we're thrown into this world. Well, opposing uh, coaches and referees and management exist. I have to interact with them. Um, and again, if we only look at what happens between a coach and athlete on the field of play, we miss that interaction, that wider interpersonal element of coaching. They're my three essences, and any one of them could be unpicked and probably become a podcast in its own right. I don't know how you want to proceed. Is there something that's unclear or interesting to you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I have like two questions at the moment. The first one would be about self-care with coaches. We know that a lot of them easily are sacrificing some aspects of their personal life because they are too immersed in coaching in a sense. So whether and how coaches learn to self-care. And I guess the other part is kind of thinking about the coaching life project in terms of um, the coach herself or himself in terms of as a coach, you are developing your own excellence and you have a sense of becoming in the coaching. So you are definitely oriented towards your athletes and caring for your athletes. But at the same time, you are probably caring or concerned about your own development. So kind of this, for example, in volunteering literature, it said that, yes, it is other-oriented activity, but there is also this kind of self-oriented activity and, and uh, that personal development aspect. So maybe those two things would be interesting to explore further. Yeah, absolutely. Um and sat here this morning reflecting back on the paper and the data. I, I'm not sure. I don't necessarily see a dichotomy. It's not that I can only care about athletes, but I don't then care about my own development, or or I don't. I don't have a concern for my sport. I mean, we all have multiple people that we care for in our lives, whether that's family, work colleagues, uh, partners. You, you know, so um, it doesn't necessarily have to be one or the other. 
On the self-care question, I think it's really pertinent. Um, what we did was following up on this uh, project, we, we wrote a book um, with my PhD supervisor, Kathy Armour, Care and Sports Coaching, and each coach became a kind of case study chapter in its own right. But what was interesting was across one of those chapters focus on, focuses on self-care. And the reason it does that was because it was an issue brought up by all of the coaches. You know, coaches talked about the strain of, you know, travel, the, train, the strain of being a coach at home as well as on the field of play, investing so much emotional labor into their athletes that they might not invest so much into their other relationships, whether that's partners or family. And some of them talked about, you know, regretting not spending time with elderly parents and regretting not spending more time with partners, you know, breakdown in relationships with partners. So, you know, it was um it was a common feature. Um and I think it then takes us into burnout. It takes us into um you know self-care. And I don't necessarily have all the answers on that. Um you know what what I would say though is that you know Possibly some of the answers are kind of organizational. Uh, what can organizations do to help? What climates can we create to help? Some of them are maybe personal, and that kind of ties into the second one. That Having said all of that, all of the coaches really identified strongly with being a coach. One of these coaches was very experienced. You know, he was uh, in his 70s, and I asked him about retirement and you know, he basically said, I, I will, I am a coach. I will be a coach for life. You know, and mm -hmm. he talked about taking on the athletes and, and what I thought was amazing really was he was talking about taking on athletes, not just for a season, but for their career. So you're making a 10, 15, 20 year commitment to those athletes to be a mentor, to be a coach, to support them. So that was the level of. Um, commitment and identity you know he was 70 years old you know I would meet him in Starbucks and he would turn up in a tracksuit that was his identity that was him he was a coach and all four of them were were like that and again that probably reflects my identity crisis that prompted the whole study was I a teacher was I a coach and I also wondered and I know you've done some work around meaningfulness I wondered if there's a project on meaningful coaching I'd be interested in your thoughts. Can I ask you to answer that question? Yeah, so of course you. you can ask. Yeah, so as far as what I've seen, I there isn't a meaningful coaching project. So I haven't come across that. And if that exists, then it's I would really love to hear. So if somebody's doing that, please get in touch. But um, I think that would be something that that would really be interesting. And and um, my postdoc when I was at John Moss University, I was part of that was looking at coach coaches' careers and the meaning they find in coaching. And so I guess just kind of linking to what you are saying about caring for the athlete and, and caring for, for the sport as well, not just about the a specific athlete but you are actually concerned about the whole sport and and the future of your sport and you want to contribute i think that really links to 
meaningful work literature, which kind of emphasizes that people want to do things that uh, kind of transcend their self-interest. So the meaningful work is typically something that you can see that it makes the world, uh, world a bit better place in, in some ways. And so I think that's something that connects to coaching right away. At the same time, usually people also want to be uh, doing work that kind of helps them in their personal growth, that they feel that they are developing and they are learning new things. And and definitely in coaching, that's kind of everyday problem solving. How can I help my athlete to become better? How can we kind of get over this injury? So I think just looking at the work in uh, the literature, meaningful work, I think it would make like perfect sense to use that to explore questions about coaching and meaningful coaching. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think that is, you know, is perfect, really. Um, looking back, you know, the coaches, there was almost a sense of legacy. Yeah. Building a program or maintaining standards in a sport, leaving a sport in a better situation um, after their impact. Exactly the same things that the coaches, especially the older coaches, were telling me. So I, I guess some of the younger coaches were more concerned about their using coaching as some work experience to help get a job later on. But especially the little bit more mature and more experienced and older coaches were uh, kind of really concerned about their sport as it is and what's the future of their sport and how can they help to make it uh, a better future for their sport. Absolutely. And then on top of that, you have the, um, the interpersonal relationships, you know, you know, committing to an athlete even after they've stopped coaching them for a particular season but still being yeah. their coach and their mentor that they can pick up a phone call to, still checking in on the athlete, um, still having communication, even if the athlete moves on to a different club, a different team, but having that relationship again, you know, they were citing meaningful work there, I think. So, yeah. So basically yeah. there's some work here for you, Nora, to, 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 to progress. Uh, probably for both of us Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm trying to delegate it I'm trying to delegate (laughs) thanks for joining us this week on physical activity researcher podcast if you like the show make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on twitter this podcast is made possible by listeners like you thank you for your support if you found value in the show we would really appreciate a rating on apple podcast or whichever app you're using or if you would in a real old school way simply tell a friend about the show it would be a great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day